Uh, well, good evening. It's good to be back after um, a few weeks' paternity leave, so thank you for that. And thank you so much for all your support, your prayers, your presence and gifts. We've been inundated, so thank you um, so much uh, to our, from our whole family. Um, now, this evening, we're in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, perhaps an unfamiliar passage uh, to many of you. Please do find it, um, back on page 989. Now, to get us thinking as we get into this passage, I I want us just to be thinking about what our society uh, teaches us generally on the idea of of sin. Uh, Just to get us going on this, um, here's a a Thomas the Tank Engine book. Uh, Some of you may have read it, probably not. It's called Hector the Horrid, um, the Horrid Hopper, sorry. And and it's a simple story. You know, Hector is a truck. Uh, He he shouts, he gets angry. If anyone tries to shunt him, he, he scares Rosie, he boshes Bill and Ben, he shouts at Thomas. Um, he, he seems to be very much a horrid truck. Or is he? Uh, because actually, Thomas finally gets his attention by biffing him so hard, he biffs him off the tracks. And then finds out, it's a bit of a letdown really, that, that Hector isn't that horrid, he's just scared. And um, he's not horrid at all. Thomas helps him out. Uh, it's a nice little story. The kids love it. Let me give you an ex- another example. Take the DreamWorks film, uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Some of you may have seen it. Again, there are some horrible, terrifying dragons. They're called Night Furies. You know, it's a great name if you're going to name a dragon. Um, that The people of, this, uh, of a Viking village are scared of. But then the main character, Hiccup, he, he gets to know one of these Night Furies. And they find out they're not evil at all. Uh, they're kind of misunderstood, badly treated, that kind of thing. Or, or take another, a final example, and it's a bit old now, but the epic Batman film, The Dark Knight. Okay, some of you may have seen it. But the Joker tries to turn people against uh, themselves. He tries to twist people into evil incarnations of himself. Uh, those people show, as, as Batman puts it, Maybe I'll try. People are ready to believe in good. <laughs> you know? And people are, I'll say that normally. Uh, probably, but people are ready to believe in good. Um, notice there's a theme. Okay? That, that there isn't really evil in our world. Okay? Sin, sin isn't really a thing. Okay? It's fear. Or, or it's, it's being badly treated. Or it's small mishaps of otherwise good people. And I wonder how much you and I drink from our culture in that way. How much do we believe this view of the world? That sin isn't really a thing. Evil isn't as bad as it looks. Uh, That sure things go wrong. Yes, people do bad things. But they're the exception. They need medication or support or help. But see, we need to get a biblical view of the world. We need to see that sin, evil... The devil, they're real. They're serious. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul shows us this in this extraordinary passage. That's one that's a tough read. It's tough to decipher. But it launches us deep into how bad the world really is and how bad it really will get. Now in reading this, as as David read it earlier, you you may have thought, you know, my goodness, what, what is this? This is a tough passage, isn't it? 
it, it's, um, it's been a full-on de- few days for me trying to get my head into it, round it, beneath it. You, know, you may have lots of questions. Um, hopefully I can answer uh, some of them. Some of them I won't or can't answer. But, but, but what makes this a tough passage is the, is the fact that it's, it's what's called apocalyptic writing. Okay, and it, we don't find much of this style in Paul, um, but if you've read some of Revelation or, or the second half of Daniel, uh, you'll have had a taster of this kind of writing. But, but apocalyptic writing, it speaks of the future in grand, visual, cosmic terms. It's, it's big, it uses images, and it draws often heavily on um, other parts of the Bible. He uses similar language or motifs. Um, Paul here is using, he draws on Daniel 11, he draws on Isaiah 11, he draws on language of Ezekiel and the Psalms. But it's helpful to know it's this kind of genre, um, this style of writing, and it helps it because it means we, we're not gonna, we won't push this passage to be more specific than actually it aims to be. We've got to read it kind of looking at the big picture, Rather than necessarily inspecting it under a microscope for every detail. But Paul, as um, David mentioned, has been talking a lot about the, the, the coming of Christ. That's what we had in chapter 1. It's a big theme in his first letter that we've been going through. And it's a big one here in the second. And Paul's big worry here is that the Thessalonians are going to be deceived about the second coming. Perhaps it's not something we think about much, but verse 3, notice... Let no one deceive you in any way. In any way. Okay? Now, the big idea, I'll put it out front and center, for what I'm going to say tonight is this. Don't be deceived. Okay? Don't be deceived. Christ's return is going to be bigger than you think, because evil will get worse than you think. Okay? Don't be deceived. Christ's return will be bigger than you think, because evil will get worse than you think. Because let's, let's dive in. There's been some false teaching spreading around the Thessalonian church. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. What's the false teaching, did you notice, that Christ has already come back? Okay, that his second coming has appeared. You know, perhaps, I don't know, they'd argue that he'd come back invisibly or spiritually. You may think that's a bit distant, but, but that may not be that different, actually, from certain streams of Christianity today, you know, that, that teach Christ's return kind of becomes a metaphor for salvation, for things getting better. You know, Christ has returned. You know, all can be saved. You know, the, the awkward teaching of a bodily resurrection, it gets lost. Uh, it's a bit easier. It's a bit less dramatic. It's a bit more socially appealing. Sure, Jesus is coming back in a sense. Uh, you know, his, his spirit, his transformation, his example, his influence of his teachings, that's going to make all things better. But Paul says... Don't be deceived by this. Don't start thinking that Christ's return has actually happened. In other words, don't be taken in by a dumbing down of the gospel to a more tasteful, less dramatic form. And to show them how much this false teaching misunderstands about us and about Christ, it's like he kind of cracks open the the, the shell of the future and he gives us a little peek inside. 
And he's clear. Christ has not yet returned. And how do we know? Well, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. In, In other words... We know Jesus hasn't come back yet because two massive signs need to happen first. Okay, there needs to be this great rebellion and there needs to be this arrival of this man. Okay, it's a little bit uh, perplexing, isn't it? But since they haven't come, neither has Jesus. Okay, that's his argument. Now, I'll open up what, we, what these, these two signs are in just a moment. But before I do, I want us to just see what Paul is doing here. Paul is he's opening up the future to show us how bad sin really is and will get. And only as we see the darkness both in us and around us, will we start to realise the scale of, of, of Jesus' return and how big it will be. Christ's return will be bigger than we think, because actually evil will get worse than we think. You know, if I have a small view of sin, small view of rebellion against God, then I'll have a small view of what it means for Jesus to return. He may well have returned. But if I see how it really is, the giant extent of sin, the giant extent of rebellion, then I'll get the cosmic nature of Jesus' return. Because the, the coming of Christ is so cataclysmic, it will have unparalleled opposition. There'll be a monstrous rebellion, and evil will reach its zenith. So we, so let's, let's see how bad it will get. Firstly, evil will get worse than you think. Let's take that second half of the big idea. Evil will get worse than you think. And Paul shows us this by these two signs. Firstly, this man of lawlessness. He's an intriguing character, isn't he? He's, he's, he's kind of the ultimate antichrist, okay? Let me explain. He, he is a dark character, isn't he? Okay? Just lawlessness, that description, okay? He's a man of ethical anarchy. Complete rejection of what's good and what's wise. He despises God's laws and perhaps even sets up his own to replace them. You know, what God has called light, he calls darkness. What God says is good, he preaches as wicked. He twists, he deceives, he lies. God says love, he says kill. But more than that, he's the ultimate blasphemer, verse 4. He exalts himself so much that he he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Can you imagine a man so deluded, so wicked, as to claim divinity itself? He is a false god with false laws. It is utter evil, isn't it? Perhaps he's rising from within the church, or he rises from outside it. It doesn't matter. But here is a man... Who elsewhere in scripture is known as the Antichrist. He is the complete opposition of Jesus Christ, isn't he? Rather than declaring God's law like Jesus, he's lawless. Rather than making himself nothing like Jesus, he's exalting himself. Rather than being the temple itself, he's he's assuming the seat in the temple. Rather than being the eternal son of God, he's assuming this title to himself. This is the Antichrist. This is the opposite of Jesus. You know, it's a bit like um, one of those, those photograph negatives. You know, back in the day, some of us may remember, before digital cameras, you had a film okay, uh, in a camera. And when it was processed, it could look a bit weird, the film, couldn't it? All the colours were opposites. 
Uh, the blacks became white when you printed. The pinks became blues. It was, it was the opposite. The, the negative to the picture's positive. And that's this man. He's the negative to Jesus' positive. Now I'm persuaded Paul is talking about a real man here. Now some, some argue it's a, a kingdom of Antichrist. But, but verse 3 specifically labels him as the man. The man of lawlessness. And that, that also makes sense given this role as the one who parodies Christ. He's an, an individual person. So that's the first sign, the ultimate antichrist. Evil will get worse than you think. And the second one is the rebellion. Or, or perhaps another way of saying a, a great apostasy, a, a great rejection of the faith. Lots of people who call themselves Christians falling away. And then in verses 9 to 12, we we see why this has happened. It's due to the ultimate deception. Verse 9, there'll be all power, there'll be false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception in verse 10. Not only does does Paul show this man as an antichrist, but his whole appearing, in a sense, is, is is a messianic counterfeit. He's going to be revealed, verse 8, like Jesus. He will come, verse 9, like Jesus. He will do signs and wonders like Jesus. This is an extraordinary ministry of deception. It's a counterfeit gospel with counterfeit miracles empowered by the devil himself to bring about uh, an awful situation of a colossal rejection of God himself. Okay, verse 10. Many will refuse to love the truth, and so they won't be saved. Not only do they hate truth, verse 12, but they have pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, like the man, people will love lawlessness and will love a false god. This is wickedness at its deepest, its darkest, sin expressing itself in unbridled lust, it's sin city, isn't it? With God himself forsaken and rejected. Now sometimes we can look at the news and kind of think it can't get much worse, don't we? There's a, there's a shooting, there's a massacre, there's corruption, there's abuse. And, th- and then, unfortunately, it always does, doesn't it? And Paul is showing us it will get worse. It will get much worse. The ultimate antichrist is bringing the ultimate deception and rebellion. Okay, don't be deceived. Evil will get much worse than you think. Well, what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, two implications for us. One, okay, if, if evil will get worse than we think, it means that evil must be present in our world now. Okay, right now, sin and rebellion are real. You know, we are not, as the world would like us to think, on a trajectory that eventually everything will just get better through human efforts. Okay, we cannot just purge our bodies in the world of sin. We can't just clean it up like scooping plastic out of the ocean or making energy renewable. It doesn't work like that. Because for this kind of horrific future to be real, there must still be sin in the world. There's still sin in our hearts and there's still a love of falsehood, a love of unrighteousness in us. It means Satan is still an enemy deceiving people. Don't be deceived, Paul is saying. However much our world paints a happier picture, God has a much more realistic picture for our hearts and our world. You know, no wonder, no wonder in our world 
there are still shootings, there are still paedophile rings, there's still raping and domestic violence. No wonder loneliness and depression are on the increase. No wonder we, we say harsh words to the ones we love. Sin is real. It's who we are. It's the world we live in. Don't be deceived. But Paul is saying more than that. He's not just that evil is present now, but also that, that its deception is present right now too. Verses 6 and 7. We have this idea right now, notice that lawlessness is restrained in some way. That the man is restrained in some way in verse 6. And then verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Now, to be honest with you, over the centuries there have been many different proposals of who or what is restraining in these verses. Okay, Is it the church? Is it the preaching of the gospel? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it some evil power? Now, I'm not sure, but Paul's point is that that things haven't got as bad as they will, isn't it? If, if lawlessness is restrained in some way. But the temptation at this point is to think, well, if the man of, this man of lawlessness, whoever he may be, is to come in the future, well, I don't need to worry now, do I? Okay? We can be complacent. If it's, if it's all future, then I, I won't be deceived now. But no, deception is very real. Verse 7 is really important for this. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. Evil is present in our world. And more than that, it's a foretaste of what is to come. Okay, it's, it's this mystery of lawlessness. It's a foretaste of the man of lawlessness. You know, that, that's why many people have said, including the Apostle John, that there already have been many antichrists. It's perhaps a word you've heard, used. Okay, so the Apostle John, in his first letter, says there's a, a spirit of antichrist, that there are many antichrists. Uh, Daniel 11, that this text picks up on, uh, is, it probably was referring to um, a guy called Antiochus, who, who desecrated the temple in the second century BC. So he was a form of Antichrist in a sense. Then in the Reformation, you know, may know, um, people were happy to refer to the Pope as an Antichrist, making laws contrary to Scripture, leading people away from Christ's free grace. Because these, in a sense, are foreshadows of this man of lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What does that mean? That means we need to be on our guard, doesn't it? On our guard against deception. Deception is Satan's game. Verse 9, he has false signs. Verse 10, there's wicked deception. So if that's the future, it's at work in the present. This is not the time now to be complacent. Because the result of deception is serious. Verse 12, all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Punishment awaits those who hate the truth. So, so if you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, perhaps you do know there's evil in our world, but you'd never actually thought it could deceive you. Well, please hear this warning. Deception is real. Okay? It is real. But God brings truth. God brings truth to us in the good news of Jesus Christ. Come to God for truth uh, before it's too late.
And if you're a Christian here, please hear the warning as well. Don't be complacent. Pride comes before a fall. If we think we'll be fine, then that's when it's most dangerous. You know, how do we know deception? How do we know false teaching? What have we got to do? We've got to spend time in the truth, don't we? We've got to know our scriptures. How well do you know this book sitting in your lap? You know, that's what you know, Paul encourages them to do, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's saying, remember what you've already been taught. Cling to the truths of old. The way, the way to know the fake is to get to know the real. Um, some of you may know my dad used to be in the world of Islamic art. Um, it's a little niche, but uh, I remember him telling me about a, a, a catalogue um, uh, that he worked on where there was a kind of a door knocker with a lion's face on it. And it, it was being referred to as kind of a genuine um, article. But he'd seen it, and he, he knew actually this was no such thing. It was a complete fake sitting in front of, uh, sitting in front of him. Well, how? Because he knew the, what the real should be like. Uh, with this one, the, the inscription was wrong, it was going the wrong direction, it didn't look quite right for the time and place it was supposed to have been made. He had spent so much time studying the real deal, how inscriptions should work, uh, that he could spot a fake a mile off. We've got to know the, the real, the truths of scripture if we're going to not be deceived by false teaching, false ways of living uh, that lead us away. Don't be deceived. Evil will get worse than you think. Which means evil and deception are real right now. But remember, Paul is is showing us that Christ hasn't returned yet. That's the big idea, isn't it? He's showing us how bad evil will get so that we see the wonder of Christ. So now let's turn to the other half of of our big idea. Don't be deceived. Christ's return will be bigger than you think. Because the evil will get worse than you think. Christ's return will be bigger than you think. However bad the rebellion and this this man of lawlessness gets, they are no match for the glorious return of Christ. His victory will be decisive. Okay, Although the, the man of lawlessness is an antichrist, this counterfeit, he does not match Christ in power. Okay, This is, this is not a yin-yang kind of situation. You know, do you know that symbol with the, the black and white kind of curling next to each other? They're in balance. There's always evil. There's always good. No, not a bit. Jesus will win. Jesus, he's in a t- different league altogether. Verse 8. It's a passing comment, but it is a glorious few words. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Isn't that amazing? Who the, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul here is drawing on Isaiah 11. You know, if you can remember, if you've got an amazing memory. You may remember back to our Christmas series on uh, Isaiah 11. Speaks of God's anointed one. That stump of Jesse. And here are the words from Isaiah, very similar. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Christ's power here is unparalleled. It is unmatched. It is a complete one-sided fight. Okay, This doesn't go the distance in boxing speak. 
They're not going to go through all the rounds. You're not going to be wondering who's going to get the points. No, this is a knockout in round one. It is swift. It is brutal. However dark the world gets that we live in. And let's be honest, it does get dark. Okay, We've seen holocausts. We've seen wars, famines, extensive child pornography. We've witnessed abuse, scandal, pain, suffering. We also know it in ourselves, don't we? The darkness of our recurring sin, our shame. But however dark it gets, the darkness will not win. The dawn will break. The light of Christ will scatter the shadows. Jesus, the man familiar with suffering, that will bring to nothing the most epic manifestation of evil there will be. He will squash it like an ant. His victory will be unmistakable. We will not wonder, has it happened yet? We will will not be in doubt that there will be no more sin, no more suffering crying or pain, no more false religion, no more sin. Now, of course, we don't know quite how. How's that going to happen? What's it going to look like? You know, Jesus, the man with scars still on his hands and feet, and yet a man exalted to the highest heaven with the, the, the power over the universe, myriad upon myriad of angels. So how big tonight is your Jesus? When darkness seems to loom, When you look at the world and see the marks of our sin and failure, do not despair. Christ's return will be far bigger than you think. Don't be deceived. Christ's return will be bigger than you think. But because it's so big, we know it hasn't happened yet. That's the big focus of Paul in this section, isn't it? His description of the man and the rebellion To show us they haven't happened yet. They're so dramatic and Christ's return is so cataclysmic. Of course they haven't happened. Verse 3. The rebellion must come first. And we've seen there's a restraining now and then verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And then it will happen in the future. And that that means Christ's return is imminent. It isn't necessarily going to happen immediately. This is something this passage has really challenged me on. I think before this week I'd be happy to say Christ could come back this exact minute. And I'm not, I'm not so convinced on that. Paul shows us something has to happen before he comes back. Now that leaves us with a question. How does that fit with what Paul has said in 1 Thessalonians, what Jesus has said himself about return being like a thief in the night? That it's going to be sudden, that we must be prepared. Well, I think we've we've got to hold this vision of this man of lawlessness and this coming of Christ, in a sense, as one cataclysmic event. This will all come suddenly. A man of lawlessness will appear and Christ will strike him down. The rebellion will kick off and Christ will bring condemnation. It's a package, it's an event. And it will be sudden. Paul, in a sense, he's expanding our vision of what it means for Christ to return. It's imminent. But but just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean we try and guess when it has. Okay, you, you may know people who do this. Perhaps say, yeah, maybe they're the Antichrist, or or or, or maybe it's them, or you know, and, and people have done this throughout history, haven't they? But Paul does not write in a way that encourages us to do this. 
As I've said, he's writing in this apocalyptic language. It's grand, it's clear, and yet it's, it's slightly elusive. It uses epic titles rather than specific names. We are not meant to start hypothesizing and second-guessing if so-and-so is the man of lawlessness. We are meant to start wondering, are we in the Great Rebellion now? Is this it? Because if we are, Christ will come. And if we aren't, he won't. That's how we'll know. So don't, don't try and second-guess it. But lastly, since it hasn't happened yet, it means we must not expect perfection now. Now, Jesus does say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, one that grows and grows. And we've seen that in Acts. Just as the opposition to the gospel ramps up, so the growth of his kingdom will be, will be glorious and unstoppable. But in the face of that growth, I've got to be honest, people will fall away. Opposition will come. Sin is going to flare up. Don't be deceived that we should expect our fight, whether personal or corporate, with sin to diminish somehow. Or that if we preach the gospel, we should expect our church to have no problems. There will be hurt amongst us and in us. We will sin against each other and be sinned against. Christ hasn't come back. Evil is present. So we seek righteousness as Christ has encouraged us to. But with mercy amongst each other and kindness to one another. We endure, we remain steadfast as we await Christ's return. And the, the, the cosmic eruptions that this text leads us to that will happen are greater than we could imagine. Our glorious Saviour, Jesus Christ, he will, be, he will come in a way that is far bigger, far greater than we can ex- express. So we pray. We pray together, come back Lord Jesus. Come back. Amen.